good one is sponsored by Vulture Festival, Vulture.com's annual pop culture extravaganza. Events include Aziz Ansari, Stephen Colbert, Connie Britton, Sarah Jessica Parker, The Carmichael Show, Chelsea Handler, and many more. Vulture Festival will be held in New York City May 20th and 21st. Buy tickets and find more information at VultureFestival.com. Welcome to Good One, Vulture's podcast about jokes and those who write them. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox, and each week I have a comedian, comedy writer, or director on to play and talk about one of their jokes. This is a bonus episode! What's a bonus episode? It's an episode that is a bonus episode, and this is one. Essentially, there are good one seasons, but then someone comes around that we want to talk to so much that we're like, bonus! And, and so that's this. So this week's guest is Justin Simeon, director of Dear White People, the movie, and creator of Dear White People, the TV show, premiering on Netflix on April 28th. I interviewed Justin a few years back for the movie, and when I heard of the TV show, I knew I wanted him for the podcast. If he wasn't so good at writing movies and TV shows, Justin could be like a, a hell of a writing teacher. He is particularly good at synthesizing big ideas into story and into comedy. The scene he chose comes from the show's first episode in which Sam introduces her white boyfriend to her friends for the first time by bringing him to watch Defamation, which is Dear White People's kind of like dead-on scandal parody. Even more than the sketches we've done, you know, this is a full scene from a narrative TV show, so there's going to be a lot of visual stuff that you'll miss, but I actually do think it's interesting to just kind of focus on the dialogue, you know, in the clip. So, enjoy Defamation, and then Justin and me talking about making fun of Scandal. What are you doing tomorrow night? What do you got? What are you wearing? What are you talking about? I'm gonna watch a TV show. Not just a TV show. Defamation Wednesdays are the epicenter of black college life. Okay. Don't you have some J's? Oh, wait, are you trying to my fair lady me for your black friends? A, a little. Oh, so in this instance, you want me to appropriate your culture? No, I... Mm. Mm. Kevin? Oh, my God. Since when do you even wear sweatpants? I wear them all the time. You're always taking them off me. Well, shit, Sam. If I knew you liked them light, I would have hollered. (laughs) Hey, I'm Gabe. Joelle. You listen to me, and you listen very carefully. Yes, yes, yes coat boots. You do not own me. I am not your property. You do not look, you do not touch, you do not grope, and you definitely do not pinch my ass at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Yes. He's don't seem to mind any other time. There were cameras there. Roland Martin was a mere two feet away, and we all know how he loves to blast people on Twitter. I'm still in therapy from the last time I was trending. But I'm in love with you. Tell him. Get him. You are the leader of the free world. You don't get to fall in love. And what about you? I'm in love with my job, which is to get little bitch babies like you to act like grown ass men when the world needs them to do their job. That's my girl. But she gotta say something, right? I've got a job for you. Blow me. Right here. In the Oval Office, I'm that eagle. Yes, Mr. President. Oh, what? 
I pledge allegiance to your cock. So who, who is that? That's her father. Well, actually a clone of her father who works undercover for the CIA after her real father's untimely death provided the perfect cover. Well, that's a little, uh, that's a little far-fetched, no? Does every American show revolve around fellatio-related cliffhangers? Hey, it's in our Constitution. Black lives are degraded without regard and we ain't here watching TV. This is how the revolution dies. Hey, I was thinking... We should have a sit-in, maybe in Bechet's dining hall. Where the white legacy kids live? Exactly. Engage the part of the student body that has the luxury of ignoring us. Not everything we do has to be geared toward white people, Sam. Hey, is this, uh, is this about the party? Nah. We planning to protest the library. Too many books in that motherfucker. <laughs> Man, I just, you know, in 2017, I can't believe something like this could happen. Really? Because I can. I mean, it's almost like you and I attend two totally separate schools. Hey, man, I'm just as pissed off as you are. Not possible. No, yeah. Look, I, I, that's not what I meant. I meant, you know, uh... Look, bro, just because you got a black chick on your arm doesn't mean you get to Miley Cyrus our pain, all right? Reggie, chill. No, 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 look. You're absolutely right. I have no idea how you feel. But I want to. Look, I'm Gabe. Why are you even here? I mean, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna hit me? might surprise you, but I don't use my fist to solve problems. Hit you. Nigga, I should hit you for thinking that I would hit you. You know what? It's not worth it. Sam, I'm sorry. Everything is going, Sam. Sam, you okay? Daddy? But I buried you on Tuesday. How if you need me, girl? Ooh, shit. So I'm here with the person behind that scene, the writer, director, Justin Simeon. Thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure. So uh, you recently started seeing the episodes in front of a, an audience. What was that kind of like? I mean, it's like you. I've been sitting on like a secret. Like I feel like Kristen Wiig and the surprise party uh, skit because like we know what we've been working on so hard for so long. And uh, dear white people, you know, it invites a lot of speculation about that title invites a lot of speculation about what it might be. So to get to see it in front of people and it's not just us that think it's funny or think it's great, you know, um, to give that kind of feedback and validation is I mean, it's awesome. It's why you write. It's why I do what I do. So the scene we're specifically talking about, which is the the defamation scene, which is the uh, scandal parody. If I you say so, I didn't. <laughs> how does it? How did it play in front of the audience? Do you think they they also saw it maybe as a scandal parody? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, it's it's a it's definitely um, a take on something that I think if you're a, a black person of a certain age, you've absolutely been to that viewing party. You know, uh, the the black female driven soap political soap trope you know that that's just like uh it's just so ingrained in my experience as a young black guy 
I just, I mean, I had to talk about it. Like it was, it was just one of those things. It's just one of those cultural experiences that were just sitting out there and hadn't yet been sort of done in a television show. I couldn't, I really just couldn't help myself. <laughs> so, you know, what is your kind of overall feeling or maybe a complicated feeling about uh, Scandal or those shows kind of in general that you wanted to capture in the viewing? I mean, I think they're, honestly, I think they're great. And I think what's, I think what's smart about them is that Shonda knows what they are. Like she, they're, you know, I kind of call them kitchen sink entertainment because it's like every episode they give you every possible thing that could possibly happen. I remember like, you know, and I never really, uh, I never like watched Scandal in order. I was always like at a house where it was on and I was catching things out of order, but I was always able to figure out more or less what was happening. And, uh, you know, I, I just remember sometimes someone would be like digging underneath a cell or like someone was someone else's brother and someone who was dead is now alive. Like it was always like, you know, and, and what was so funny about it is as a person who wasn't watching week to week, just how caught up everybody was in it, you know, but I, but I couldn't be because I, I didn't know what happened previously. I just know that every time I watched it, you know, she wanted the president more, but you know, was further away from him than ever. And, and also some crazy political scandal or drama was happening. And I just thought like, you know, the show was just, is obviously like a lot of fun, but me watching people watch the show, like that was, that was the gag for me. That was sort of like, you know, that was the, that was the, the aspect of, of sort of like young black culture that I thought would just be a fun place to set our characters, particularly characters that are dealing with an interracial relationship because, you know, scandal, uh, and even like how to get away with murder, you know, very popular among, you know, black women, but the interracial aspect of it, which is pretty controversial and certainly was controversial for me in the film, that kind of doesn't seem to come up. So I just thought that'd be really funny to sort of throw Sam and Gabe in the middle of this very black night and what they're being entertained by is this interracial, this very strange interracial relationship that everyone's kind of getting their lives from. It just struck me as a peculiar but accurate <laughs> version of that. It's interesting the way you describe it. It almost feels like you felt most like how Gabe feels in the scene, which is like, what are all these black people <laughs> watching? You know, I've always felt like I've definitely, you know, <laughs> I've been the guy in the room like, wait, so who is that? Okay, really? That seems a little crazy. I've been that guy for sure. And I always get the death stares from my friends who are like, Justin, this is not the night to revoke your black card. Like, you have to support this show and, and us watching it. Uh, so I've definitely been there with it. But I think, I don't know, I, I love that you can have so many different versions of black people on TV now. I mean, it just like I, I'm in no way, shape or form mad as Gandalf because like <laughs> it serves like a need, like it serves... It, it serves an itch that I think like black people have when we watch things like we love we love inter I, I, I personally as a black person speaking for myself as a black person I uh, you know I love I love intellectual stuff I love you know digging deeply into a series and, and thinking about its intricacies but I also just love like talking to my television yeah. and saying girl don't go in there like I love both you know and so they both sort of like uh, they serve different purposes for me as an audience member. There's a there's a nice meta thing going on because in in the first movie maybe the most iconic scene is the characters complaining at the movie theaters that there's not a good representation of the type of movies black people want to see but then you have in the first episode of your television show them being like this is exactly what I want to see was that intentional uh, no I mean I think both of them were really attempts to sort of capture 
what the conversation is at the moment. And, you know, uh, I think honestly, at the moment, a lot of black audiences are feeling um, optimistic, you know, maybe suspicious, but optimistic, because there are, I'm not going to say we've reached the mountaintop, but there's certainly more films about more interesting, nuanced black characters in movie theaters and on television than there's really ever been in in my lifetime. Um, And so, you know, it's... That conversation of like, why is the only thing playing at the movie theater, you know, Medea goes wherever she's going. Like, why is that the only one? I, that's not that we don't talk about that anymore, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so, yeah, it just, for me, it wasn't, I don't know that it was like a conscious choice. Like, I'm gonna, this is a movie, so I gotta talk about movies, and this is a TV show, so I gotta talk about TV shows. More so that it was just, it just occurred to me that this is a funny thing to mine yeah. that I haven't really seen in a show before. It's interesting. You mentioned that change because there's a few changes from in just culturally since when you made the movie and partly hypothetically because the movie existed. And one is that increase in what some people call like a new new black aesthetic television. So the Atlanta insecure. I know I was listening to an old interview and you said that Medicine for Melancholy really inspired you to make this movie and medicine for melancholy is actually like my favorite movie so this movie and then this show comes out after moonlight how considered are you in terms of like okay so where do i where does this now fit because i think the first movie as a result was kind of maybe i don't know if say confrontational but maybe pointed in that where this there now it fits in it, it it doesn't have to stand on its own in that same way Yeah, I mean, I don't know how conscious I can be, you know, I don't really have the luxury of like timing when things come out or like, honestly, deciding which project happens before the others. And I'm still in the grinding stages of, you know, what I hope to be a career. Right now, it's a second job. But, (laughs) uh, you know, but I I definitely you talk about I mean, I'm a fan of Barry Jenkins. And, you know, Barry Jenkins did the does the fifth episode of of our season. And, you know, of course, I had seen Moonlight. I knew it was brilliant. And and the, I would say the best movie I saw that year. And at the time when I saw it, I was thinking it was probably going to remain the best movie I'd seen that year. And so, you know, for me, it was just love. I, I just I think he's great. <laughs> but I had I, of course, I couldn't have, you know, I couldn't have foreseen Moonlight and then Get Out and then Insecure. And then just like the timing of where our show sort of fits in the zeitgeist. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, that's just blind luck. I have no idea. <laughs> You mentioned Barry Jenkins shoots the fifth episode. Because it's a TV show, there's more collaboration than obviously a movie works. And there's a writing staff. You know, I think every creator has a different relationship of how they work with a writing staff. You know, there's obviously the the idea of a sitcom writing staff where everything is written in the room and then it gets rewritten by everybody. Or then there's like kind of the Aaron Sorkin writing staff where he's just like, give me ideas and then I'm going to write it because I can write faster than you guys can try to write like me. What did you end on? How did you start? Kind of what was your evolution in terms of working with the writing staff? I think Dear White People is is it's a very specific show. I mean, it really is my sort of machinations. It's it's a very specific aesthetic set of characters. So um, definitely, like it was a learning process for everyone to not only sort of like get inside of my head and figure out why I make decisions, but for me to also communicate that as well. And you know what I told Barry and what I told all of the directors is that I really I'm not really interested in your version of me. I'm interested in you being as cinematic as you can be and being as true to these characters as you can be. And if there are any like boundaries that you sort of reach, I'm there. I'll be there to sort of say this is not what I this is not where I want to go, but. 
But other than that, it was really, I wanted to see what people would bring to the table. I think, you know, we came into the room and I, I, I had the first season fleshed out. I knew the beats of all the episodes. I had scenes that were just held over from previous drafts of the script that ultimately became episodes. So I had a lot of information to give, but you know, I'm one, I'm one person. And, and frankly, I wanted like uh, a bunch of different points of views in the room. Like I needed female voices and I needed, you know, white people that I needed black folks that didn't agree with me on things. And I, I, I needed like, I needed the, the people who countered arguments that I maybe agreed with to be just as strong. And so that's really what I looked for. And, and with Barry in particular, you know, um, a lot of my work that he had seen before that, you know, I don't really, I don't, I, I'm not really known of like, uh, shooting an entire film or shooting entire anything like in handheld jittery cinema verite style. That's just not, I'm not as attracted to that as an overall aesthetic. And so there were moments when Barry would give me shit because he'd be like, oh, I'm holding, we're holding the camera, Justin. Are you cool with this? And it's like, yeah, of course I am. Because, you know, really what I, really the aesthetic of Dear White People is, is, is cinema. It's, I want it to be as cinematic as possible, which for me means that I want the visuals to be as much a part of the storytelling as the writing and as the performances. And so, you know, my strategy was to bring people in who had a great cinematic, aesthetic of their own that they could sort of um, do within the confines of my world. And and that's exactly what Barry did and what Charlie McDowell did and Nisha Ganatri and Tina Mabry and, you know, all of our great directors. So a scene like this on a writing level, do you have a sense of how it changed by having different voices in it? I mean, defamation was definitely one of those things that came in pretty fully formed. <laughs> you know, uh, we definitely like, uh, I have a team full of really, really funny people. So we're always trying to punch things up and, and make sure they're as classic and timeless as possible. But defamation was definitely one of those things where it was sort of like, I, I just wrote it. <laughs> I mean, it was just like, it was very clear to me what that scene needed to be. And, uh, and, and I have to say, like, as a director, and I take this, this, this very seriously, what I do, but just sort of replicating that style in both shooting defamation, uh, replicating that network TV slick shoot through glass and every shot's moving like that kind of thing was so fun. It was just so fun because there were no stakes. It was just like, I just get to go bananas. And then to shoot the audience reactions as a director, which is purely performance driven. I mean, I, I, I set up a couple cameras and then we just go. And uh, I mean, it was just the most fun we had because it was we were being so honest about this thing that we all do and that we all laugh at and that we all know is a part of our lives and uh it was it was really a celebration more than it was i would say like even you know i don't i don't feel like we're making fun of it i feel like we really are celebrating it because our characters love defamation <laughs> they, some of them love to hate watch it but people love it and uh and that's you know that's the experience that i think rings true when shooting the defamation scenes how did you instruct the actors because obviously it's an elevated tone like obviously it's interesting to see tonally because it is so clearly elevated and and obviously from an already elevated existence. So how did you kind of instruct them to perform considering that? Within the world of defamation? Yeah. Well, I have to say uh, the actors definitely came in pretty on point. I mean, everyone knew what we were doing. Everyone, I mean, and the, and the great thing is the actors who play the president and... Uh, <laughs> 
uh, Olivia Bishop. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry, Olive Bishop. Excuse me. Those, you know, they are good actors. So there's emotion there. Like they are playing something that's real. They're just it's the performance style is just so over the top and. Really, it's fun when you're in the director's chair and all you have to do is push people further. Like, that's the best part because pulling someone back and finding nuance where there isn't, that's hard work. But saying go crazier, be it more insane is, is frankly just really fun. There's nothing, you know, there's no, there's no like craft there. It's just yeah. like, do more, do more of that. Scream at him, you know, so. Particularly seeing that parody or homage or just a different world made me think about the tone of Dear White People, the show versus Dear White People, the movie, which I watch almost right after each other. And, you know, satire can be anywhere on a spectrum and it definitely feels less like one. And I was wondering how you felt on it. And, and maybe just because, because of how the episodes are structured, you, there are just less white people around. <laughs> so then it's, it's uh, less clear when the satire is happening. But I, I was wondering you know, what your objective was because, and it's possible that just satire on television is like a harder tone to stay in. So, you know, how did you think of it? You know, where kind of did you place it as a result of it being a TV show versus a movie? Well, I definitely see it as, you know, it's a five hour piece, I guess you could say it's, a, I would maybe say it's a five hour movie that you're just watching in slices and you're watching it from Sam's point of view and then you're watching it from Lionel's point of view and then you're watching it from Brandon's point of view, but it's all like sort of moving forward and it's all one big piece. So, you know, um, we start with Sam, who's very much a part of black culture uh, at Winchester and then you move to Lionel, who's very much trying to penetrate uh, and sort of like surround himself by black culture at Winchester. So you make your way, you certainly make your way around Winchester. I'll say that. And there's certainly episodes where what exactly it is that we're satirizing with this first season becomes very clear. But I wanted, especially for the first half of the season, I kind of just wanted to sort of like get under your skin. I just wanted these characters to sort of like sink in and 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 for you to sort of kind of start to like them and, and care about them before things start to get real. And also one of the things that I, I recognized pretty early on is that this wouldn't be a hard satirical show. You know, you look at something like Veep and what Veep is, I, I think probably my favorite satire on the air. Um, I also love Silicon Valley. But the thing about Veep is that because it's such hard satire, it's harder to care about them. And, uh, and for Veep, that's not a problem because part of the point is that they're all really unredeemable people who are kind of lucking their way into <laughs> running the country. But with these guys, you have to, you have to really care about them. You have to spend time with them in a way that, they're not just caricatures or, or archetypes, uh, which I think archetypes are very necessary for satire to work. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was certainly a conscious effort to have a lighter touch episode to episode, but to think of it as a whole piece where there is a thing that we're specifically satirizing, but we got to get, we, we're taking our time, I guess, getting to it. Otherwise, I just think it might be grading. I mean, this is, you know, we're talking about race here and it's already a difficult enough topic. So I just think week to, well, we're not week to week, but episode to episode, if it was just hard, hard satire, honestly, I don't know how fun it would be and for how long it would be fun. And, and, and I think uh, going on the, a character journey, I just think served us better than sort of, you know, like you said, being a hard satire every single episode out the gate. You know, you mentioned a little bit, part of 
how satire changes a show or changes a, a piece is how the characters are considered. Where in satire, essentially, you know, characters are kind of in relationship to the theme that you're you're working on, and it's interesting considering that this was once a movie that was that. How did you both kind of flesh out that character, and are they still still somewhat representative of a point of view on a theme? Yeah, I mean, they definitely uh, they they're they're definitely still there are archetypal foundations to all of the characters, you know, especially when you first meet them in these first episodes, you sort of get a snapshot of who not only you as the audience think they are, but how the people around them sort of consider them. So that, that piece is still there, but you know, for me, these characters were always sort of living, breathing people and especially going on the road with the film and talking to college kids and getting their stories and hearing that they were going through the same stuff I was going through and, 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 and talking to faculty members who were going through the same things when they were in college, it definitely helped bring more humanity to them. And, and frankly, that was a lot of the work of the room of, you know, when we went into the room, well, let's, let's really consider where this person might have come from. And especially when we started casting the characters, I mean, the actors themselves gave us such inspiration as to who these people might be. I mean, I really feel like casting is the second part of creating a character because ultimately you want it to fit well on these, on these actors' skins. So, you know, it's, you've got to pull from them at some, I mean, you're, you're, you would be dumb not to pull from, from their lives and to pull from their, you know, their mannerisms and their quirks and all those kinds of things. So, you know, fleshing them out into, into fleshing it out into a more of a character based piece. I, I don't know that that was, particularly challenging, but it was, I guess it, it was definitely a, a, a game of, okay, well, what are we trying to say? And are we saying it in this episode? And are we saying it loudly enough? And okay, well, you know, at this crucial moment in episode six and seven, like, how are we building to this overall statement that we're trying to make? So yeah, I think there are, they are all rooted in archetypes that are related to the theme. But again, I think it's a much more pleasurable watch if you just care about them independent of that theme. You know, I always wanted the sort of racial politics of the world of the story to be secondary in each episode, because that that element of the show is, is always there. It's always in the underground. So now that I'm in Sam's shoes watching this sort of overall racial thing play out at Winchester, I want to spend time with Sam. Otherwise, like I said, it just gets to be it starts to become a political dramedy or something like it's just if it's all about the race politics on campus it's just for me that wasn't as satisfying to write and i just don't think it would be as fun to watch as a, as a comedy we'll be right back with more justin simeon after this word from our sponsor oh hey i didn't see you there <laughs> can i tell you about vulture festival for a second great thank you now in its fourth year it's like this magic weekend where where Vulture, the, the site that uh, I work for, uh, turns into this three-dimensional thing you can walk around in and like look at stuff and see panels uh, in. Uh, this year it will be held on May 20th and 21st with, with so many uh, very cool events, you know, which for what it's worth, I, I help plan. No big deal. Uh, people that will be there, Sarah Jessica Parker, Aziz Ansari, Stephen Colbert, um, the people behind that TV show Black Mirror, uh, Connie Britton, Connie Britton's hair, uh, you probably because uh, the event is very cool and you have good taste. There's going to be lots of comedy things. Comedy Bang Bang's doing a live show. Two Dope Queens will be doing a live show. Uh, the Carmichael Show people will be there. Chelsea Handler is doing a cooking demonstration because, you know, why not? That sounds great. Uh, we got Anthony Tamanek doing his Donald Trump impression 
like the entire interview it's just him uh in character which is uh funny and also terrifying um i personally will be having a pajama brunch seriously with uh jessica sinclair and lennon parham of playing house and comedy and being you know nice smart funny people who are good to see uh talk and, and that's just the start like there are more events yet to be announced a live episode of good one maybe so buy tickets get more information at vulturefestival.com see you there We are back with Justin Simeon. So we were talking about themes and characters. You know, what's interesting is the the original was a multi-protagonist movie. And that is a very specific thing that, as a result, each character, similar to all satires, has to be resulting around a theme. And then TV, similarly, you have to write characters in a similar way. And also TV is interesting because each episode has to have a certain, certain sort of internal theme and you kind of game that in an inter- interesting way because each episode revolves around a character. So you kind of allow them to be sort of a conduit to a certain theme on the issue at hand. So I, I think the easiest way for us to kind of understand how that functions is, you know, you know, first, why start this series with Sam? What does Sam represent? What do the other characters represent in relationship to Sam? You know, especially since... You know, she was hypothetically the the main character in a lot of ways in the movie, but in a lot of ways not. So, you know, what does she bring, you know, everything around the idea of Sam being that first episode? I mean, Sam being the first episode really came as a function of the audience. I mean, just sort of talking to people in screenings, the big sort of, I would say, controversy is how people felt about what I was saying with her ending up with uh, her secret white boyfriend. I mean, that really was like, uh, that was a argument within the audience. I mean, some people were really for it. Some people were against it. Some people were wondering if I was saying something about black men or white men or, and, and, and just that question felt like the most potent or, or the most um, important to answer or speak to right away. Um, and particularly in a show that's about sort of existing as a, a black face in a white place, you know, a biracial person sort of gives a really interesting uh, entry point to that conversation, I think. And particularly a biracial person who is living a life that is sort of like, you know, clustered. She's got different clusters of friends and different people that she's a different person around. Um, and some of that has to do with the fact that she's biracial and some of it doesn't, but it just felt like the right way to start a series about race. And, you know, like you mentioned with the film, you've got like, you've got, you know, maybe an hour and 45 minutes to cover one big idea through, you know, in my case, four or five people, you know, those people have to pop immediately. You have to kind of get what they are more than who they are at first. Um, and you hopefully try to give it enough nuance and enough touches that people feel real within that construct. But even if you go back to something like network, you don't really get into the shoes of all of those characters. You don't really get to go home with all of them. I mean, you technically do, but you don't really, you know, you know, um, you know, you like the network executives in network. You don't, you don't know what drives them. You don't know why they're so ratings hungry, but it doesn't matter because they're playing an archetype that you recognize. But when you have a show, you know, 
and if things go well, you have hours and hours and hours, like your canvas is so much bigger. So, you know, I would be a fool to try to, to try to treat it the same way. It's like, I have time, I can take my time. I don't have to make my point right away. And, um, we, we actually do have the space to both understand these characters as people, as well as situate them along, you know, the lines of what we're trying to say thematically. It's interesting because the a lot of ways the content of the episode parallels that in, in that Sam, partly through this episode, is sort of figuring out what the balance is between what she believes are the issues that she must address and just being a person. And there's a fight that constantly basically happens throughout the entire episode. And, in, you know, the episode ends with sort of both happening at the same time. And she's saying it can be both. And I think it's it's interesting in contrast or with the Joelle character who is new and seemingly has it all. I don't know anything else, but like immediately I can't remember what it is, but she was like watching something and then she's like, well, I I can stay woke and still watch this. What is the hope kind of with Joelle in relationship to Sam? Because she is a new person to this world. You know, what's kind of fun is that when we do a show like this, all of the other characters sort of become archetypes because that's what they are to the main character, you know, and also to us as the audience. Like if we're seeing Joelle through Sam's eyes, we only see Joelle one way. And and we were very specific about that. You know, point of view was like, that was my one big thing. It's like, we're not going to cut to the other, the, the person on the other line. Like we're never going to cut outside of our character's point of view. I mean, we can see things within the room that maybe they don't notice, but like it, we're not, it's not the um, outside of the the narrated portions of the show. It's not an omniscient point of view. Uh, so, you know, we sort of purposely lead you to believe that characters are certain things that they're not just because you're watching them through the eyes of other people. And as we get to know Joelle through other people's eyes and through her own eyes, we will see, you know, you'll find hidden depths and, and some of those looks start, start to mean a lot more <laughs> than they did in the first episode. Maybe, maybe it made you chuckle or maybe you're like, huh, what's going on there? And then you start to really figure out what's happening beneath the surface, which is kind of the fun of it and kind of the point of it. You know, it's sort of, uh, as a person who has watched a lot of black characters and shows oftentimes, you know, that there's nothing more to the characters than just their, the surface way that they appear or what they mean to, you know, the white characters in the show or whatever. So, so we're kind of like playing with that, you know, this idea that like, you know, Troy is so it's just a buttoned up, you know, poster boy for 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 blackness and, and Coco is the weave where I mean, these people were seeing them all through Sam's eyes. And that's what's so fun is as you move through the series, like they're not at all, maybe or maybe they are. Who knows what what they seem because we are very purposely writing them and portraying them through the point of view of that protagonist. So it's it's actually really fun for the actors, too, because they get to sort of like, you know, when when the sort of weight of the theme or the show is not on their shoulders, they kind of just get to be in scenes and have fun and relate. Um, but there's certainly a lot more to Joelle than meets the eye. And uh, I think she's probably I can't even say that because there's so many fun new characters, but she's certainly among one of my favorite new characters. And Ashley Blaine Featherston, who plays her, I've always thought was like a genius and needed to be, you know, the spotlight of a show. And so I'm just happy I have her. And yeah, we definitely are making a lot of use of that character in the future. And kind of the most 
technical or how willingly boring you're happy to be to describing how you actually plot out something like that. I want to give you a platform. I mean, like, did you watch Arrested Development season four and be like, okay, this is how it worked or didn't work. You don't have to explain how your fellow Netflix show didn't work. But, you know, how, you know, how deliberate are you or even how do you deliberate with like a sort of different perspective, Rashomon is TV kind of fitting to like how a streaming platform allows you to be. Yeah, you know what I've learned since doing the movie is that like you can't put all your eggs in a book's basket. There's like countless books about how to do this and and countless ways of how to structure a thing. And at the end of the day, none of that stuff always works all the time. So the first job is to really dig deep and figure out what it is that I'm even excited about and and what it is that like in my heart of hearts do I even want to do? And then I put that on paper and I look for the holes and then I go researching to figure out, well, how do I make that work a little bit better? Um, and to be honest with you, I watched a lot of TV shows for tone more than, more than structure because I never really saw a satisfactory version of this structure anywhere, but I knew in my head that it would totally work. I just, I hadn't really seen it because it was sort of living somewhere between an Altman film and say Arrested Development. It was like somewhere in between the models that existed. So we really were sort of creating it as far as we were concerned for the first time. Like how do we tell a global story from multiple perspectives and have each of those slices feel good and feel grounded in something and feel like they in and of themselves were satisfactory. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of that is is running it through the room. I have a really good group of friends also who are just we are all very honest with each other. And and, you know, it's really just running it through that machine and just checking it over and over and over again. Really. The other thing is we talk a lot about theme and we talk a lot about you know, how to express that theme. So we spent a lot of time saying, okay, this is a show about identity versus self. What exactly does that mean? And I mean, we really, it was like a, you know, like a beautiful mind diagram (laughs) trying to like dissect, well, what, how, what is our, what is our as a room's definition of identity and what is our definition of self and what is our definition of that interaction? And once we all could kind of agree on that, we were, we could figure out ways to say that through these character journeys where no one actually says that. Like no one says, you know, to anyone at, at any point in the show, like, you know what? Your identity is at odds with yourself and you need to be real. Like that never happened. So, you know, for us, it was like a lot of kind of really meticulous work at first just to make sure everything was hanging on the right skeletons. And then it was, we just let it go. We just, we just punched it up and took out things that just weren't working and tried to be honest and brought our stories to the characters. I mean, there's really really like, you know, in any given episode, there's a lot of me in there, but there's a lot of other people's tea in there too. I mean, all our secrets are all kind of spread evenly <laughs> across the spectrum of characters. So they feel both real and lived in, but also you, f- I, w- I hope that you take something away from it and you feel like we spoke about something as well. The character I found most fascinating in this scene, and I now realize we'll probably see specifically his perspective on this scene later in the season is Reggie seemingly has like a whole world of a scene and because he seemingly doesn't like the show. He doesn't like that they're at the show. And I I wonder, and with you obviously know what he's thinking, but also know what he's thinking because there's an episode for it. But can you kind of talk with how to, how you kind of built Reggie into that scene? Yeah. I mean, in my mind, Reggie is feeling some type of way that this girl who you know, we don't know all of this yet. We don't know their history yet at the beginning of the show, but there's certainly this girl that has his eye and that knows that she has his eye and kind of has been 
egging him on in a way and saying, hey, you know, what's going on? And just sort of, you know, being in his space and sort of um, acknowledging and accepting his, you know, uh, his interest in her suddenly show up with a white dude and they're watching a show about a girl who'll do anything for the white president. I mean, he's pissed. Like, he's he's bumped, you know? And we always try to figure out how do we make it personal as well as, well as political. So, in the scene, Reggie says, you know, oh, see, this is why the revolution dies because we're in here watching TV. That's what he says. But what he's feeling is, you know, the subtext of that scene is like, I cannot believe that that's the dude. That's the dude. That's the reason she's not with me is because of him, his corny ass. Like, that's what's happening, you know, um, for him emotionally in that scene. So that constant tension of what the characters say and what they mean, I think, you know, that was certainly a, a, a thing that we were always looking to do. Not just because it's good writing, which it is. Like, every character should have subtext. But, but also because that's what the show's about. It's like, who do we say we are versus who we are? You know, ultimately, that's really what every episode comes down to, which is a little bit different than what we're satirizing, by the way. Um, you know, we're satirizing a... I don't want to give anything away, but we're satirizing a time in this country where I think a lot of us are sort of at odds about how to involve ourselves in some kind of political or activist kind of process, but also maintain who we are and also uh, be honorable to all of our other identities, whether that may be father or employee or employer or whatever. That That is what we're satirizing. But in satirizing that, it is a, it's a deeper character exploration of, of identity and self. Because really, when you're talking about political activism, that is what it is. Like, am I a leader all the time? Am I do I always have to be aware and woke and and speak to something? Or can I just like be in love? Is that OK? Like, you know, like, when can I turn it off? Do I have to tweet everything? It's it, that really is the tension of that. So, you know, what we're always trying to do is figure out, well, what's the big thing we're trying to say? But then how do we bring it home? Like, how do we make it feel lived? in like it relates to our everyday life there's uh, another thing that happens in the scene and is a kind of a bigger thing that does obvious in the show is so gabe says i can't believe this happens in 2017 and though uh, i believe you stopped shooting like right on election day you did shoot during the election so you're aware that there was at least a seismic shift in terms of how people were seeing how you know I especially think as speaking as a white american seeing how blatant racism exists when i you know when i interviewed you when the movie came out you knew you wanted to make this a tv show but you did not know this so what was kind of your journey with this version of this tv show in re in regards to how the country shifted as a result well i mean yeah we didn't know what was coming politically but i it when we watched the show back it seems as if we did honestly but i think it just speaks to the fact that you know racism <laughs> Is, has just always been there. It, that has never really changed. And if we are being honest about what racism is, that's what we strove to do in that room, because I don't think racism is bigotry. And I think if we keep pretending like it's the same as bigotry, and bigotry is awful, by the way, but if we keep pretending that racism is the same as prejudice or bigotry, we'll never get near a solution to it. And so, you know, racism is baked into a system. And that system existed before Donald Trump was elected president, and it will exist after he is impeached, I mean, replaced or whatever happens to him. Like, it will continue to exist because we have not in any way, shape or form really begun to transform the societal underpinnings that happened as a result of slavery. It just hasn't happened. So, you know, we, we were just trying to be honest about that and how it sort of like functions in our world. And it just so happens that, you know, the world unfortunately proved us really right in a lot of ways, but, you know, to try to get to your question, 
I mean, I, I would say this. I definitely knew that we were perpetually in the aftermath of some racial event. I mean, it was just like every day there was like a new thing that we were all really outraged about. And that that was kind of why I thought it would be interesting to start the show where the film left off. Not only because I wanted to continue to explore these characters, I didn't want to do a reset of new characters, um, but also because like that was that was the times. It was like every morning you were waking up and just last week something had happened and we were all in the aftermath of grappling with it. So I kind of I knew that that's where I wanted to start. Um, and yeah, I mean, as the series just goes along, yeah, unfortunately, we are talking, we were predictive in a lot of things that we were talking about. But I don't, I, I didn't, we couldn't have anticipated, I don't think the world we lived in, we, you know, the, 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 we shot the last scene of the last episode as the results were coming in and as everyone was realizing what was about to happen on November 8th. And, um, yeah, I mean, it really was a shock to us that the show was, is sort of a commentary on that because, we didn't know that that's what we were writing exactly. We were just trying to be as honest as we could be. <laughs> that sound means it's time for the laughing round. So it's like a lightning round, but because it's jokes, it's laughing. Oh, God. Do I have to come up with jokes? No. Okay. Don't worry. I think often when people release albums, people have them do like song playlists or, you know, what five movies would you have people watch before, before seeing Dear White People to kind of understand if anything, your visual language. Well, dear white people, <laughs> uh, do the right thing. Uh, network, school days, uh, and for a fifth one, oh gosh, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, Royal Tenenbaums. I don't like when people say I'm like the Black Wes Anderson or something, or like the new Spike Lee. But I get it. And yeah, that's a really great aesthetically specific multi-protagonist movie. So yeah, Royal Attendant Bombs. <laughs> and Election. I can't forget about Election. That's a great film. Writers' rooms tend to have jokes that don't go beyond the writer's room for a variety of reasons. Do you remember any in particular? Hmm. That are not dirty. Um... Well, they, can be, they can be dirty. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's right. Is it racist if... You name a black dog LeBron. <laughs> that's a little, that's a little non-sexual one. Uh, and also, uh, because Halloween happened uh, while we were on set, there was like definitely like multiple signs uh, of the uh, the sort of decision-making tree from my book about whether or not you should wear blackface, just in case, like people weren't sure. So yeah, those are the amazing jokes that were left out. <laughs> I imagine the answer is don't don't wear. Yeah, that's mostly the that's mostly the answer. Yes, yes. If you you know they're now as you mentioned they're splintering so many sci-fi things. You know Star Wars has a new Star Wars universe thing. Is there though? I think you're more Star Trek person, but I imagine you've also seen Star Wars. In the broad generalization of superheroes, sci-fi, Star Wars, a thing or story you would like to tell? Wow. Yeah, for sure. I'm definitely more of a Star Trek guy. I love Star Wars, but I mean, Star Trek is what I grew up on. But I really, you know, listen, I've never given up the dream of wanting to tell a story in the Marvel Universe because the X-Men were my first saga. Like the Dark Phoenix saga was the first time I was like caught up in something bigger than myself <laughs> as a child. So, you know, um, 
yeah, I'm not even going to just go the storm route. Like, I want to tell an X-Men story full on 100%. I would love to, uh, because this, I mean, that was the first time I encountered a, you know, idea where it was a metaphor for something else and it was baked in, but it was also like this just really soapy character drama. I mean, if you, if you really think about it, a lot of, a lot of that is in my show and in my work, probably for a reason, because those are the first things I was really influenced by. When I interviewed you for the movie, I asked you about Taylor Swift because Taylor Swift plays a part in the movie and seemingly in the show, but she plays a song that is like a Taylor Swift adjacent song. I don't remember, but it was the first person to play you Shake It Off. How do you currently feel about Taylor Swift? I don't. I mean, I'm just being honest. I don't think about what Taylor Swift is doing. I mean, she makes good music and she says problematic things, but she's, how old is she? She's like... A privileged 20-something role that has never lived outside the industry. I don't have expectations, I guess, for Taylor Swift or a lot of pop artists, frankly, because why? <laughs> when, we, when we're in a generation where we're looking to pop artists to sort of like tell us about society, like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if we're looking in the right place. I think you're bound to feel offended by something a pop artist says. Um, so yeah, I'm not one of these people that sort of like has a chip on my shoulder about Taylor Swift. I really don't. I probably couldn't even tell you the last problematic thing she says. I just sort of like see on Twitter that someone has a problem with something she says and I kind of just skip it because I'm just not that interested, <laughs> if I'm being honest. I appreciate it. That's it for this week's episode of Good One. Dear White People premieres on Netflix on April 28th. You can follow Justin Simeon on Twitter at jsim07. Good One is produced by Jordan Bell with production help from Ryan Katz. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on iTunes. Five stars, please! Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I am Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Have a good one. <laughs>